Okay, welcome back. It's chapter eight of Sign of the Unicorn. You know, just as quickly as I said, chapter seven was my favorite in the whole series. I'm thinking, no, maybe it's chapter eight. Like, this book is so good, and each chapter gets better and better. Corwin has been stabbed. And, you know, it's just getting insanely good at this point. Like, there's only a handful of princes and princesses in the palace and Amber, and they're just stabbing each other left and right. It's like a full-blown murder mystery at this point, and it's so great. And the chapter starts, quote, Out of every life a little blood must spill. Unfortunately, it was my turn again, and it felt like more than a little, end quote. And he's wondering why the assailant hasn't finished the job, and it's because he's been teleported to his old house on Shadow Earth. And, you know, you can just, I would just love to see this come to life in a series or a movie. You know, Zelazny was very explicit. I've quoted him earlier as saying that he really liked the idea that the story starts in the real world and then goes into this fantasy world, but that he always knew he'd be coming back to Shadow Earth. And it's so cool because the house you know, Carl Corey's house, which is somewhere outside of Albany, New York, in, in upstate. It's kind of like a character in and of itself. You know, I just have this vivid picture in my head of, you know, this house, the driveway kind of out in the rural suburbs of Albany. Uh, you know, it's sort of 70s. I just have this idea of like a one-story Eichler almost. And, you know, that Corwin's the ultimate bachelor, so we'd have had this, you know, place with leather furniture and pretty sparsely decorated, but he's got his couple of pieces of art that he really loves, and he's got a study. He's a military guy, he's always traveling, so there just wouldn't be a lot there. Um, I just, you know, I developed such a vivid picture of that in my head, reading these books over and over. And he says, you know, he'd been teleported to, quote, my bedroom in my house, the old one the place which had been mine back when I was Carl Corey. I had been returned to shadow, to that world heavy with dust. The bed had not been made up since the last time I had slept in it over half a decade before, End quote. He realizes that the jewel is probably trying to kill him, may have been responsible for saving his life, but yeah, like he should get that thing off of him and he drags himself outside and he stashes the jewel in a compost heap is able to go around the house make his way across the front yard up to the street and his goal his plan is to basically flag down a passing car like he can't call anyone on his trumps right it could have been anybody that stabbed him and there's only a handful of them so there's nobody he can trust at this point not even random it's too risky. And so he has a piece of cloth. He's using it to try to wave down a car. Life is fading from him. He thinks he's going to pass out at any minute. He might die there right on the road. And a couple of cars go by and give him a funny look and keep driving. Corwin says, quote, I sagged back and rested. A prince of amber can hardly invoke the brotherhood of man for purposes of moral condemnation at least not with a straight face, and it hurt too much to laugh just then, end quote. That's classic Zelazny. And he's starting to pass out. It could be the end. He's thinking, oh, Deirdre, maybe I should try her. Like, 
of all of them, she would help me. You know, she's my favorite. But then he says, quote, I am a knave, not a fool, end quote. You know, if only she weren't my sister kind of thing. And then he kind of like closes his eyes. And finally, another car comes by, but this time it stops. And he, he can tell that it stopped because the engine's still running. He, he can feel the headlights on his eyelids. It's very cinematic. He says, quote, then the click pause chunk of a car door opening and closing, end quote. And somebody rushes to his side. They're like, quote, Corey, my God, it's you. And then Corwin says, it's me, Bill. How have you been? End quote. And... This, of course, is Bill Roth. You know, a new character enters the story. Bill Roth will be a very, very memorable character throughout the series. Comes back in the Merlin Chronicles. And we'll talk more about Bill Roth. But ultimately, he gets in the car and drives off, blacks out again, and wakes up in a hospital. And he wakes up there, and he's like, okay, I'm going to have to have a story. There's going to be questions. You know, these are Earth people, there's police, there's doctors, like, he's not a Prince of Amber here, he's got to be careful, he doesn't want to end up thrown in jail. So he works out that he was traveling abroad, he came back, he hitchhiked, which is why there's no car, he goes in, and he's attacked by somebody that was waiting for him inside, it's a straight up mugging, and he gets stabbed, he crawls back out, and, and goes to the street and flags down a car for help. Pretty simple story. Uh, He tells it to the doctor. Doctor doesn't seem to believe him. The doctor asks him, you know, did he rob you? Were you carrying a wallet? Corwin says, quote, I decided I had better say yes to that one, end quote. And so it's coming across as a robbery. But that's not what's interesting about this scene. There's a doctor here. His name is Morris Bailey. And after sort of taking down the basics of the story, the doctor says something. He says, quote, you seemed vaguely familiar to me when they brought you in, end quote. And he goes on to say that, in fact, he was on duty that night around seven years ago when Corwin had his car accident. And the doctor's like, I remember working on you then. He says, quote, I remember how I thought you weren't going to make it. You surprised me, though, and you still do. I can't even find the scars that should be there. You did a nice job of healing up, end quote. Corwin says, quote, thanks, a tribute to the physician, I'd say, end quote. And that's really fun. And again, Corwin's so clever. The doctor asks him his age. Corwin says 36. So that's kind of cool. You know, you always wonder how old do these characters look, like they're immortal, but... You know, do they stop aging when they're 20? Like, it's not really clear. And, and But I guess Zelazny imagined them in their 30s, that, that they would become a little bit more kind of grown up before they ultimately stopped aging. And I think that's important if you were to think about a series and the casting of it. Like, you know, these aren't kids. They're not teenagers. They're not 20. They're, they're in their 30s, probably, in terms of how they look. Anyway, there's some back and forth. There's a lot more interesting details that emerge about that night. And Corwin is, of course, super interested. And he's just stumbled on, right? Like he had no idea that he should go back to Shadow Earth and try to track down the doctor and learn more about his car accident. And that would have been a good idea, right? But he's just kind of stumbled into it. 
and he does learn a few things. And he starts to question this doctor, like, hey, what more can you tell me? But before we get into that, I want to just pause on this idea that this all happened seven years ago. And that just can't be right. Zelazny's just not getting the timeline quite right. We know that it's been five and a half years amber time since the car accident. Like, that's crystal clear. You can debate, you know, a couple weeks here, a couple weeks there, based on the time differential in Avalon. But it's been about five and a half years amber time. And using the two and a half to one ratio, that would be over 13 years Earth time. Uh, so it's not even close, right? He's off by almost 100%. Seven years, it just it just can't be right. Nor can you blame the doctor for having it wrong when he says that it was seven years ago because it gets confirmed a little bit further in this scene when Corwin says, quote, I did a quick calculation with my two and a half to one conversion and I had the year. It was seven, as he had indicated, end quote. So Corwin's also confirming it. And it's it's just wrong. And that one to two and a half time differential, as I've said before, is confirmed a few places throughout the entire series. There are times when they say it's like an approximation, uh, but I've been over this before. Like it, it can be off by a little bit, but we're talking minutes and hours, not not vastly off. So that's just another little glitch. And, you know, it's important because anything more than seven years ago, yeah, like if it really was 13 years back, it might have been harder for the doctor to remember. So Zelazny's picking seven. Another key piece of information in here is that the doctor apparently has a sense that Corwin was in a psychiatric hospital. Corwin talks about his amnesia. The doctor's like, hmm, have you really talked to someone about that? And and Corwin is thinking like, oh yeah, like, okay, maybe Flora had me committed to Greenwood on a psychiatric order. So that is going to become important in the future. But anyway, the doctor leaves him alone and a little bit later, Bill Roth shows up. And we learn that Bill Roth is an attorney. He was Corwin's attorney. And Corwin gives us like some background on this guy. He says, quote, Bill was a native of the area, had gone off to school in Buffalo, come back, married, joined the family firm, and that was that. He'd known me as a retired army officer who sometimes traveled on vague business. We both belonged to the country club, which is where I had met him. I had known him for over a year without exchanging more than a few words. Then one evening, I happened to be next to him in the bar, and it had somehow come out that he was hot on military history, particularly the Napoleonic Wars. The next thing we knew, they were closing the place around us. We were close friends from then on, right up to the time of my difficulties. End quote. This is super interesting to me because this country club where they met and became friends, this will feature prominently in Trumps of Doom. It's the place where Merlin has that encounter with Meg Devlin, who's actually uh, being possessed by the Taiga demon. And they talk about that country club, and, and it's first mentioned here in Sign of the Unicorn, so that's kind of cool. And, you know, it's just kind of epic that we're learning all of this about Corwin's time on Shadow Earth. We're, like, being teleported back into him as a real-world character, the one that we first met at the beginning of Nine Princes in Amber, and it's just like a wonderful 
plot device and this character becomes really important and Corwin's able to get a lot more information about about what happened he learns that in fact he was committed to a place called Porter Sanitarium where he spent two days and then escaped and had his car accident presumably heading back to his house and then after that was transferred to Greenwood so this is a piece that Corwin's not aware of up until now. Porter Sanitarium, then to Greenwood. And when he asks who committed him to Porter Sanitarium, it turns out that it was a doctor called Hillary B. Rand. And Bill Roth is like, does this ring any bells? And Corwin's like, uh, possibly. And of course, it's, you know, Hillary B. Rand, which is Brand. And this is the bombshell. Brand did, in fact, play some role in Corwin's return, his memories, his car accident. He's involved in all of that. So the plot thickens. But again, as the reader, we're still inclined to think that Brand is a good guy or at a minimum neutral because we, again, think of Flora and Eric and Corwin being committed and drugged at the Greenwood Private Hospital. We think of them as the bad guys. They're the antagonists. And the fact that Brand was in there giving Corwin electroshock therapy to restore his memories, that maybe Brand was actually trying to rescue Corwin, and that certainly will be the story. And so we're kind of going along with it, and we don't suspect that Brand is the ultimate bad guy. And anyway, there's more stuff between Bill Roth and Corwin. It's a great scene. Bill Roth finds the deck of trump cards in the drawer beside Corwin's bed he asks Bill to get them for him and he does but then suddenly Bill is like hey this is a beautiful case do you mind if I look inside and Corwin doesn't know what to say and sure enough Bill Roth starts like going through all of the Trump cards Corwin's a little bit embarrassed and you know Bill Roth is just starting to suspect that there's something kind of weird and supernatural about Corwin there's the Trump cards that are cold to the touch. There's the weird timing of like how Corwin appeared to have just teleported inside the house and dragged himself out. Corwin is able to explain this away by saying that he arrived by the same route that he left and that the assailant must have taken the same route. And that's why there's only one set of tracks going into the house. But ultimately, Bill Roth is getting pretty suspicious, but not in a negative way. Bill says, quote, but I wonder... I've had a peculiar feeling that I may never see you again. It is as if I were one of those minor characters in a melodrama who gets shuffled off stage without ever learning how things turn out, end quote. This is kind of cool because it's Zelazny being self-referential. Bill Roth is one of those minor characters, but it turns out that he's not going to be shuffled off without ever learning the whole story. In fact, in the Merlin Chronicles, Bill Roth will finally go to Amber and see the whole thing with his own eyes, which is cool. But it's a fun little scene, and I'll quote from Kovacs, who says, quote, This is an especially fitting dialogue between Corwin and his friend. The discussion about the perception of reality frequently focused on the solipsistic view that everything outside the self is unreal but imagined. But Corwin's dialogue with Bill Roth and then Roger raise an opposing possibility that the self is unreal because it is being actively imagined by someone else, end quote. And that's fun. And by Roger, he means that guard in the Palace of Amber that he's going to meet a little bit later, who's actually an instantiation of 
Roger Zelazny himself inside of this novel, which is incredible. Corwin just tries to kind of write all this off. He doesn't want to get into it with Bill Roth. And Bill Roth says, quote, You talk the same as always, yet I have known occasions when you have been tempted to virtue, several of them, end quote. And that's kind of fun because we get this insight into the softening of Corwin during his time on Shadow Earth, right? You know, they go on back and forth and... You know, Corwin wants to get one more bit of information out of Bill Roth. Bill Roth says, like, I'll tell you, but only if you answer me a question truthfully. And Corwin's like, sure, fine. And, you know, he wants to get the police report on his accident. And Bill Roth does have it. He says, quote, they received report of an accident and a patrol car proceeded to the scene. There, they encountered a strangely garbed man in the process of giving you first aid. He stated that he had pulled you from the wrecked car in the lake. This seemed believable and that he was also soaking wet. Average height, light build, red hair. He had on a green outfit that one of the officers said looked like something from a Robin Hood movie. He refused to identify himself. When they insisted that he do so, he whistled and a white horse came trotting up. He leaped onto its back and rode off. He was not seen again, end quote. And this, of course, is the exact description of Brand. It matches his trump card where he's actually got a white horse and so now corwin knows that brand was not only the one that put him in porter sanitarium to shock his memories back but that when he escaped got in the car accident someone else would have shot out his tires that he showed up and rescued him and he's still trying to save him but ultimately flora and eric enter the picture and ship him off to greenwood hospital so we're developing this picture corwin is this this idea that Brand was trying to help him, and it's a great plot device. Of course, later we'll learn that Brand was actually the one that shot the tires and was showed up to make sure he was dead, and the police actually showed up quickly enough to save him. All of this is a little bit unbelievable, by the way. Like, if Brand is trying to kill Corwin, he could have killed Corwin. Like, I, I, it's a bit complicated, all of this business with the gun and the tires and the and the lake. And But anyway, it would be a cool flashback in the series because we would sort of bring all of this stuff to life the car in the lake it's really fun to see amber characters on shadow earth the police it's a classic moment you know it's like the beginning of the matrix when the police show up to try to arrest trinity and like she ends up kicking all of their butts and like she's obviously got superpowers this is kind of what you would imagine here with bran and the and the bumbling cops but nonetheless, Corwin's got this idea now that Brand was trying to help him. And to return the favor, he answers Bill Roth's question. And the question is pretty simple. Quote, are you human? End quote. And Corwin ultimately has to come clean and say, I don't think so. And the biographer F. Brett Cox describes this as, quote, a moment of simple decency and acceptance that reminds Corwin that there are people in the world who need not be viewed through a paranoid lens, end quote. And that's the end of chapter eight. And this is an incredible scene. Corwin starts out by saying, quote, cut it out, cards on the table. I do appreciate what Brandon Corey did for me, end quote. And this is Corwin embarrassing himself. He thinks the story about Brand pretending to be his brother, about... Hillary B. Rand uh, 
committing him to the hospital, all the stuff he learned from Bill Roth and the doctor. Like he thinks he now knows that Brand was doing good for him, trying to rescue him and bring him back. And he's sort of like trying to convince Brand that he knows more. And of course, like Brand must be just laughing inside because like he's basically just right at the top of the conversation handed a deck of cards to Bran to play. He's told him straight up that he actually doesn't know what the hell's going on. He doesn't know that Bran's the one who tried to kill him. And so this is perfect for Bran and he just like starts to spin and weave and plot and plan and takes Corwin for a big ride. We get a sense here of the voice of Bran, which I think is awesome. You know, I'll give one example. He says, quote, thus end my preliminaries. All pleasantries are now exchanged. I'll bear the basics, bridle the beast unreason, and wrest from murky mystery the pearl of sweetest sense, end quote. So, you know, this is Bran the poet even more than Corwin the poet. He's just the more extreme version of that. Brand asks for a cigarette and proceeds to tell the story. And the story is basically filling in the gaps for Corwin of what happened in that time period before the start of Nine Princes in Amber, but after Corwin is exiled to Shadow Earth, you know, that century and a half Amber time. Bran says something interesting. He says, quote, Wherever I begin, something preceded it. You were gone for so long. If one must name a single thing, however, then let it be the throne. There, I have said it. We had thought of a way to take it, you see. This was just after your disappearance, and in some ways, I suppose, prompted by it, end quote. And so here we get confirmation that, in fact, they did come up with this scheme to take the throne a really long time ago, you know, a century and a half ago, and that it would be sort of half a century, 50 years ago, or maybe 100 years after the cabal is formed and they come up with a way to take the throne, that Bran shows up in Rebma asking about Martin. So, you know, there's that century of time when they're meeting with the courts of chaos, who knows what's going on, like, and I think it's super interesting because it seems like a really long time, right? A century and a half to have the idea, to take the throne, to think of a way to do it. And then another century goes by before Brand is actually looking for Martin. And then another half century before the pattern is actually damaged. And it could be that they are spending a lot of time in the courts of chaos. They're meeting with the chaos lords they're conspiring the chaos lords ultimately tell brand how to damage the pattern and while they're in the courts of chaos time could be going lightning fast in amber we know that we know it could be a huge time swing it can sometimes be slower sometimes be faster but it sort of makes sense to me that a lot of time would have gone by very very quickly in amber so that hundred years from thinking of a way to take the throne to actually asking after martin brand relative time that might have only been a few years right so again i would love to dive into that further and try to construct a timeline from brand's point of view uh, and i may do that one day if i get the time but ultimately there's a cabal brand doesn't tell corwin right away who was in it because he wants to keep talking about like all the things that happened he's setting up corwin he doesn't want him to run off and chase down fiona by divulging that fiona was one of his conspirators, etc. But ultimately, we will learn that it was Bran, Blaze, Fiona, the three of them, coming up with a way to take the throne. Bran tells a really interesting story in here, too, that Oberon had ultimately decided on Corwin as the successor, 
and that he took whatever happened to Corwin personally, because this is in the period after Corwin disappears. Oberon's still reigning. He's at this dinner and he takes things like really far and basically is glaring at Eric and says no fratricide will ever take the throne. And and so you can imagine in this period, right, Corwin's presumed dead. Eric is now discredited, not only because he's a bastard, but because he's been blamed now for the disappearance of Corwin. So if you're Brandon Blaze, you're kind of going like, okay, that's two older brothers out of the way. They already think that Benedict doesn't want it. So, you know, it really is starting to get closer to what would be Cain next, as we'll learn, and then Blaze and then Brand. And so it's very believable when Brand says that Corwin's disappearance really kind of prompted their conspiracy to figure out a way to take the throne. And he comes clean about that. He comes clean about the fact that they had to figure out how to get Oberon out of the picture. And there, again, is a lot of time that passes between erecting of Corwin's tomb, the scene at the dinner where Oberon says, it's not going to be you, Eric, Brandon Blaze getting the idea with Fiona, making a deal with the Courts of Chaos, and then a ton of time before ultimately Oberon disappears. And again, possibly because they're spending so much time in the Courts of Chaos and it's going much faster in Amber. But then they get Oberon. We'll find out. They capture him. It's not entirely clear like how they're able to trap Oberon. There's a mention later by Dara that they were tricking him because an object, a magical object that could repair the pattern, and he went on a quest to find it, and that's how they trapped him. But anyway, Oberon's out of the picture, and that starts that final year, year and a half, leading up to the start of Nine Princes in Amber. Bran says... Quote, things went wrong after, and then I had troubles of my own to concern me. After Dad's departure, though, our next move was to consolidate our position while waiting a respectable period of time for a presumption of death to seem warranted. Ideally, all that was required was the cooperation of one other person, either Cain or Julian. It didn't matter which. You see, Blaze had already gone off into shadow and was in the process of putting together a large military force, end quote. And it turns out that respectable period of time was about a year, a little more than a year. That's certainly the amount of time that Julian and Eric and Cain take before they decide it's time for Eric to be crowned. And that gets us up pretty much to the start of Nine Princes in Amber. We also learn here that it's Cain that betrays Brand to Eric, and that's how Eric learns that there's this plot for the throne. Brand, Blaze, and Fiona decide that it's Cain that's going to help them. They need an inside man, right? And Bran cuts a deal with him, much like Corwin cuts a deal. And Cain goes back on that deal, just as he went back on the deal with Corwin. And so we get this double-crossing Cain, which is great. Bran doesn't tell Cain about Blaze and Fiona, though. He says later, quote, they did not know who my fellows were, end quote. And so it's just Bran who's out for the throne. And so you can imagine, step back, Corwin's been out of the picture forever, Oberon disappears. About a year goes by, and then Brand, kind of out of nowhere, approaches Cain and says, I'm going to take the throne. Will you help me? I've got conspirators. I'm not going to tell you who they are. Cain says, yeah, sure. Sounds like a good idea. And then immediately rats him out to Eric. And that's what starts the whole Eric, Cain, Julian cabal. They basically put Brand under surveillance 
Why they don't immediately throw him in jail is not clear, but they don't. Brand is able to escape, and that sets off the whole sequence where, like, he's seen Corwin in his dreams, and he thinks Corwin's going to screw everything up, so he goes on this side quest to kill Corwin. And he's already started to go kind of mad at that point, but we'll learn all of that later. But it's just kind of interesting to reconstruct that period in the last two years, year and a half, leading up to the start of Nine Princes. At one point, Corwin asks about Benedict. He says, quote, I know he was off being discontent in his Avalon, but if something really threatened Amber, end quote, and Brand goes on to say, yes, quote, and for that reason, a part of our deal was to involve Benedict with a number of problems of his own, end quote. And Corwin says, I thought of the harassment of Benedict's Avalon by the Hellmaids. I thought of the stump on his right arm, end quote. And I will say this is problematic for the timeline. If they're really sort of at the end here, they've gotten rid of Oberon. They just need to involve Benedict with the Hellmaids. It's kind of too late. And I go into this in great detail in an essay on my website. But if Dara is the product of Benedict's encounters with the Hellmaids, he gets involved with Lentra. They have a night together. Dara ends up being like the great-great-granddaughter of that union. Benedict goes on to kill Lentra during Guns of Avalon. If that's all been sort of set up by the brand Cabal, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the initial dealings with the Courts of Chaos did involve Dara. Like Dara was around when Brand came to the Courts of Chaos and they created that conspiracy and they created that plot to damage the pattern and to help Brand so that they could reset the balance of power and the Courts of Chaos would attack Amber. All of that like involves Dara and her house, House Hindrake. So there's no way that Dara could be the product of the Hellmaids after Brand gets rid of Oberon involves Benedict with the Hellmaids, and then Dara comes, and yet, a hundred years earlier, Brand is in the Courts of Chaos making a deal with her and her family. Anyway, it's problematic, and like I said, I dig into that much more in an article on my website. Later in the conversation, Brand says something interesting. He says, quote, It was then that I decided to employ certain new abilities I had acquired, end quote, And I think he's referring to bathing in the font of power there. That's something we'll learn in the Merlin Chronicles. You know, the font of power and the keep of the four worlds. That's when Bran's, like, supernatural abilities really get ratcheted up a notch. And the timeline would be just about right for that. And he's talking about the ability to figure out what's going on with Flora and Eric. And he's kind of reading their minds. And it's like, what are you doing on Shadow Earth? There's something fishy there. And he convinces Corwin that he discovered that they're keeping him hidden on Shadow Earth and that Brand is kind of doing a good thing by going to rescue Corwin, shocking back his memories and bringing him back into the scene. I don't know that Corwin's fully buying it, but Brand's throwing a lot at him right now. And also, finally, Brand tells him, quote, Blaze fired the shots that put you and your car into the lake, end quote. And that's another piece of information here. And it's version two, by the way, of who shot out Corwin's tires, which, as I've said before, is basically the dramatic question of the whole first five books in a lot of ways. And version one is that it was Eric or some thug that Eric contracted to to shoot out Corwin's tires. You know, Eric tried to kill me. I was certain 
That's the sort of core one of Nine Princes in Amber. Now we have version two, which is that it was Blaze because, you know, and it makes sense. Blaze was the one that they were going to put on the throne. He's next in line. If the Cabal succeeds, Blaze King, and here comes Corwin, who has obviously a much better claim to the throne than Blaze does. They've all thought he's dead, but it turns out he's still alive. You know, Blaze would absolutely want to get Corwin out of the way. Uh, and it's believable. Corwin buys it. It's not entirely clear why Brand would want to rescue Corwin and bring him back into the mix of things, but Brand is lying and saying that he had begun to break with his co-conspirators, didn't like the fact that they were dealing in too many dark powers. Of course, the opposite will turn out to be true, but that's the explanation, and Corwin is buying it for the time. Finally, he reveals, Brand reveals that Fiona was the third conspirator, and Corwin wants to go off and chase her down, but Brand says, to hell with her for now you've got bigger problems and that's the end of chapter nine and presumably they go on to talk more and brand tells corwin more about the plans of blaze and the courts of chaos and that ends up being the first of two really critical scenes between corwin and brand in this first scene we tend to believe brand a little bit more and corwin's playing catch up and in the second scene uh, that's coming much later in the hand of Oberon. Of course, the tables will begin to turn, and Corwin is starting to suspect that Brand is lying about some things, and they have a much more heated conversation. But for now, we're putting Brand on pause, and as we go into chapter 10, we've got this incredible scene in the ghost city of Tirnanagath. <laughs> Chapter 9 is still in the hospital. The cops have taken a statement. They left. He's lying there. He's getting better. He's improving. He's healing fast, remember? You know, the Brand-Corwin parallels here are awesome. They were both in prison for about the same amount of time. Weakened, thin, frail, almost died. They both escape and are both stabbed now. And Brand is resting in the hospital that is the library in the palace of amber with gerarda's physician and corwin is recovering in a hospital bed here on shadow earth there's a cool bit here where corwin's passing his time by fanning out the family trumps he says quote dealt private solitaires read ambiguous fortunes among familiar faces and each time i had restrained myself suppressing my desire to contact random to tell him what had happened Later, I kept telling myself, each additional hour they sleep is two and a half hours for you here. Each two and a half for you here is the equivalent of seven or eight for some lesser mortal. Abide, think, regenerate, end quote. And the meaning here is that if you combine the time differential with the fact that Corwin heals faster than a mortal, that, you know, this eight hour night sleep in Amber is equivalent to, uh, almost a week's worth of recovery from a stab wound for for a normal human. Uh, and, and that seems about right. When he does go back to the palace, he's still pretty weak. He's limping around just like someone who's been stabbed would a week later. I think there's kind of an interesting thing here too that I've overlooked in the past, which is not only is Corwin affirming this ratio of two and a half hours to one, he's also saying, in effect, that 
eight hours sleep is the same amount of sleep you would get in amber as you would get in earth, which implies that it's dark for eight hours in amber, just like it's dark for roughly eight hours on shadow earth, which implies that there's a kind of 24 hour day in amber that the sun revolves around amber on a 24 hour clock. And, you know, that's mentioned a few times. Like I think Zelazny just, probably didn't want to go so far as to say that, you know, it's a 16 hour day in Amber or it's a 30 hour day in Amber. He just, it was too much along with the time differentials too complicated. And so we're left to believe that, yeah, it's like basically a 24 hour day in Amber. Finally, someone reaches out to Corwin instead of him reaching out to them and it's random and random is trying to wake up Corwin. He's banging on his door in the palace to wake him up. He's not waking up, and so he contacts him by Trump, and Corwin's like, yeah, I'm not in there. You've reached me in shadow. Random's like, I don't get it. Corwin's like, I'll explain it all in a bit, but what's going on with Brand? Has he named his killer? No, but he's asking for you. So Corwin's got to come back. He basically gets his stuff together. He gets out of the hospital bed, and he's about to teleport back to Amber through randoms trump when the nurse comes in and this is a super fun scene she's like get back in bed you can't be up and corwin says madam quote it is quite necessary that i be up i have to go and she says you could have rung for a pan and of course it's a double meaning he's saying i have to go like i really have to leave and she thinks he has to go to the bathroom he basically says to her quote think of it this way my dear Ours has been a purely physical relationship all along. There will be others, many others. Adieu, end quote. The other thing right before he teleports out is he talks about this prismatic after image. And would she report that? And this is the first time, I think, in the series where Zelazny has to contemplate what it would look like to a person remaining behind when someone trumps out right? The person trumping out is always Corwin or whatever. And we've never really had to contemplate that. They don't obviously just blink out of existence and they fade away. And what's left is this prismatic kind of rainbowy after image. And I think that's cool because if you were to make a series out of this, you could have a lot of fun with those effects. So he does this kind of stage gentleman thing. He blows her a kiss and, uh, he says, quote, leaving her to clutch at rainbows, end quote. And with that, Corwin leaves Shadow Earth. He's back in Amber. And he'll return here one more time. But it wraps up a really fun visit where he's learned a lot about Brand. We've learned a lot about his friendship with Bill Roth. He thinks he's learned something about his car accident, but it still won't be the final correct story. The biographer Krolik says, quote, The reader takes great enjoyment in watching Corwin return to Shadow Earth to mystify ordinary people who are like us with his supernatural abilities. There are intrigue and humor in Corwin's disappearing before the unbelieving eyes of a hospital nurse. The reactions of real ordinary people to the unexplainable is intrinsically fascinating for a reader, especially when he or she is let in on the secret of the phenomenon, end quote. And, and that's... A great way of putting it. Corwin comes back. Uh, the image here is awesome. It's like Corwin in his hospital clothes, and all he's got wrapped around him is a cloak that Random went and got for him. And dressed like this, he goes to see Brand. And 
on the way to the library, there's back and forth between Random and Corwin. Corwin's bringing him up to speed. There's a whole new line of conjecture about like who could have stabbed Corwin. How would they have gotten inside his room? Did they pick the lock? Random says, quote, as you say, silence beats a chamber pot in amber. And Corwin says, how's that? And Random says, tis guilt, my lord, like a royal flush. Classic Random with his pun, chamber pot, royal flush. It's great. And then, of course, finally, there's the scene between Corwin and Brand. <laughs> 